Welcome to Love and Loss, a podcast where we talk about the difficulties surrounding pregnancy and infant loss. It is important to know that although we may sometimes host psychologists and other mental health professionals, this show is not a substitute for therapy and or psychological treatment. We encourage all individuals and families experiencing loss to only listen as you are able. The content of this show can occasionally become triggering to those who have lost a child during pregnancy or infancy. If the substance becomes too difficult, we encourage you to turn it off. Raquel DeLeon is 27 years old and married. She resides in Kalispell, Montana, and is currently a full-time student in her first year of a PhD program in technical communication. She started two months after Dominic passed away, and it has been a blessing by allowing her to pour her grief into something productive. She will honor his life with research. Regarding her PhD program, as a first-year generation Latina, Raquel has dedicated herself to finding alternative ways of empowering marginalized groups to find their voice and join the conversations that have impacts on their community. Raquel is currently working with her professor and writing an article about the challenges Latinx individuals face in higher education, including various forms of oppression and how Latinx individuals resist oppressive behaviors and actions by building coalitions with like-minded individuals. It will be published in a journal in spring of next year. She is also dedicated to contributing research and technical communication that can help fill a gap among health communication when it comes to the Latinx community and accessing healthcare services, specifically mental health services. Outside of school, Raquel likes to focus on sharing her grief journey through social media and her blog, The Heart Mom Chronicles. Pregnancy and infant loss is prevalent, and she intends to continue to strive to break the stigma of not talking about it. Today, we welcome Raquel de Leon to the Love and Loss podcast. Welcome, Raquel. Thank you. <laughs> Glad to have you and to learn about your little one. Um, but before we get started, I have to know, who is your momspiration? I feel like my momspiration would definitely be my own mother, as cliche as that may sound. My mom had a really rough upbringing. Her mom left her shortly after she was born and left her and her four other siblings to basically raise themselves um, in the streets of Mexico. Thankfully, my great-grandmother took them in. But uh, my great-grandfather was extremely abusive. He would, like, throw rocks at them. Um, so she had some, like, dents on her head from it. Um, and they were really poor, so they often would have to stretch their meals out. Um, after my great-grandmother passed away, she was left to kind of fend herself on the streets. Um, so she was homeless for several years. She ended up having um, one of my brothers in Mexico. And when she got pregnant with my second brother, she decided to come to the U.S. to find a better life and find better opportunities to work. And that's when she met um, mine and my younger brother's father. And uh, she became a U.S. citizen, taught herself how to read, speak, write, and English. Oh my um, gosh. And Spanish with just a first grade education. So... She did everything she possibly could. She ended up enduring a lot of physical abuse from my biological father. She ended up divorcing him. So she became a single mother. 
And I just saw her struggle so much, but she always did what she needed to do to provide for us. So I, I definitely have that mentality. Like you just do what you got to do and you work as hard as you need to. So the next generation, my children will never have to see me suffer or they will never need of something. Oh my goodness. I, I feel like, yeah, I feel like she is absolutely a mom-spiration to probably yeah. everyone who knows her and yeah. just an inspiration in general. Um, yes. Wow. I keep, I keep telling her she needs to write a book. I'm just like, mom, start writing these stories out because seriously, you could really inspire people that are going through the worst parts of life, like there is a way out. Even when you feel like you just don't want to go on anymore, when you feel like life isn't worth living anymore, like there's just, there might be something better waiting for you. Yeah. It feels like there isn't sometimes. So. Oh my gosh. Well, she just, it sounds like I can tell already just how much she did for her kids to protect you guys. And yeah, um, that is a mother's love for sure. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. Okay. I'm going to have to shift gears. I'm, I'm kind of like stuck on how amazing your mom is. <laughs> yeah, she is an extremely amazing woman. Um, wow. So I want to hear about you as a mom. Um, can you start by, you know, introducing us to your pregnancy? So um, my then fiance has been now, um, we had just been living together for maybe three months. And we ended up falling pregnant very quickly, but I knew I wanted to be a mother at like the beginning of 2019. I just knew that it was my time and I was ready for it. So I prayed on it and we ended up finding out that we were pregnant on July 8th. And there was some nervousness because my nephew did have heterotaxy syndrome. Um, So basically heterotaxy is a heart disease where your organs are either missing or they're enlarged, they're too small, they're backwards, they're pointing the wrong way, they're on the wrong side, or you have more than one. So we ended up doing genetic testing just to be sure. And when we went in for our 13 week ultrasound, we already knew it was a boy. So we named him Dominic Gabriel. Um, That's pretty. Yeah, so we really wanted to find something strong. So we gave him a middle name of an archangel and we're keeping that trend to offer our boys. So um, our next boy will have the archangel Michael as a middle name. Beautiful. And so we found out at 13 weeks, it was like an hour and a half long ultrasound. And we're like, why is this taking so long? I started to get nervous. I knew something was wrong because the nurse looked, she just looked concerned. And I was just like, okay, what could it be? Because we've heard the heartbeat. We know he's alive in there. I could feel him moving. Well, not yet, but I knew he was moving in there. And um, she had, she, she's like, I need to step out for a moment. And so she stepped out and she brought a doctor and I was like, okay, something's wrong. So yeah, that's scary. Yeah, that's he came scary. in and um, I'm like, can you guys tell me what you're seeing? What's wrong? He turned the screen to me. He's like, if you look at his heart right here, it looks like it's pouring, pointing to the right. And it looks like it's starting to lean that way. And it looks, this is supposed to be his stomach right here, but it's extremely small. And that could be one of many reasons. It could be because he's not drinking enough liquids. He already peed a lot, uh, still developing, et cetera. 
And I was like, okay. He's like, but we'll talk in the conference room after this ultrasound. And so we went into the ultra, uh, the conference room afterwards. And it was him, another perinatal specialist. And to make it worse, a med student was there. But I did give permission to the med student because they have to learn somehow. Yeah. Um, so they told, they sat us down and they told us, we suspect that your baby has heterotaxy syndrome. We don't know if it's with congenital heart defects or without them. Uh, kids are often born with heterotaxy and they live a completely normal life. If they have a series of congenital heart defects, their life expectancy goes down. So like, you have to come back in three weeks so we can verify if it's heterotaxy. And I was like, great, now I have to go home and wait for three weeks and figure out if there's something wrong with my baby. When you hear stuff like that, I mean, three weeks is forever when you're waiting. It is. Yeah. Yeah. So we came back three weeks later and we had a congenital heart defect. We ended up figuring, um, finding out that he had this, one of his heart defects was microgastria, which basically means that his stomach was too small. So when he was born, his stomach was actually two sizes too small, which ended up causing him to have a J tube. Um, so he needed to be fed through his stomach. So Fast forwarding to the following year. So Montana State doesn't have um, a children's hospital. So we had to choose one. And we ended up choosing Colorado Children's because they were experts in heterotaxy and congenital heart defects. We felt comfortable relocating there. And we ended up relocating from January until June. Well, so you had to like choose another state to go to to deliver your child? Yes. Just to make we, sure he was uh, in the right hands. Yeah, we originally were going to choose Seattle Children's, which yeah. was eight, only eight hours away. Uh-huh. Um, but unfortunately, I was following a heart baby who ended up getting a mold from one of the operating rooms, oh into my gosh. Heart, which made him severely sick. And the hospital ended up coming forward and saying, we take full responsibility. So I was like, I'm not even taking that chance because my baby already has a chance of not even making it. Yeah. So we chose Colorado Children's, which was so 16 if, hours away. Yeah. So if anyone listening is, <laughs> this is why we say you're a mom as soon as you find out you're pregnant, because look yeah. at what Raquel is doing already to care for her kid. She's relocating yeah. to another state just for like delivery. Which was huge because we had nobody. It was just me, my husband, myself, and um, our dog, Marcella. And so we ended up having to deliver Dominic three weeks early because I ended up developing preeclampsia, which I kind of expected because I started swelling pretty early on. I started having pretty severe headaches pretty early on. And uh, unfortunately, I'm struggling with it now, just the pain. Mm -hmm. But um, once he was born, we found out that he had total anomalous pulmonary venous return which basically means his pulmonary veins weren't draining the correct way. So his lungs quickly began to fill with fluid shortly after he was born. So I did try to do a vaginal birth. Unfortunately, I couldn't dilate past nine centimeters and he started showing signs of distress. So I had to go for a Uh C-section. And my hope was that I I would at least be able to have him on my chest for a second. But they basically just went, here's Dominic and the new cousin. I couldn't see him for a few hours because they had to do an echocardiogram, which is an ultrasound of the heart. Um, they had to intubate him. So they had to put a tube down his throat so he can breathe better because he wasn't able to breathe on his own. And then it kind of just, 
it was like an emotional roller coaster from there because right after he was born, they're like, he needs an open heart surgery like now. <sighs> and I was like, he was literally just born. You People usually typically wait a few days a week to give the baby some strength. Right. Um, but they said that he wasn't going to make it if he didn't have open heart surgery um, soon. So Dominic is born. Yeah. You don't get to hold him. He doesn't get to no. go on your chest. No. You whisk him away and yeah. tell you he needs surgery. <laughs> okay. Birth is already an emotional roller coaster. Yeah. I cannot imagine what that was like. Yeah. It was, it was hard because he was born on February 17th and I didn't even get to actually physically hold him in my arms until March 1st. <gasps> so I had to wait several days. Like, even before he went into surgery, I was, like, crying because I just didn't know if he was going to make it after the first. He's just so young and so fragile. Yeah. Um, so the nurses asked me if I wanted to put my arms under him to just hold him close to me. And so I did before they took him away. And it was, I was struggling a lot the first a few days of his life because I was so scared that I wasn't going to be able to connect with him. I was like, what if he doesn't even know that I love him? Mm. That I'm scared for him. I can't breastfeed. I can't hold him. I can't do anything with him. And I was so mad because I just felt like I was robbed from so much. Yeah. First time mom. And I get so jealous of all the moms who could just hold their babies right away or go home after a few days because I knew we'd be in the hospital for months. Wow. I mean, all the, the jealousy that you're speaking of is so justified. It's so justified. And when you said you were robbed, I can't think of a better way to put it. You absolutely were robbed of so many things. So he ended up, um, he ended up doing really well. His first open heart surgery, he ended up um, on this machine called ECMO. And it basically just cleans his blood for him. It's the highest form of life support. Fortunately, he only has to be on it for two days. He was able to wean off of it. And it was just basically just watching him recover. He was actually missing a spleen so he was more prone to infection and he didn't heal as fast as other babies so he had a wound back where his scar was and it took months to get that thing off so it took him way longer than other babies we ended up fighting way more congenital heart defects after he was born it's just like oh and he has this oh and he has this just like when are we ever going to be able to leave here Mm -hmm. Just like so, more and more things like yeah. happening. Yeah. So we were in the hospital from, he was there from February 17th is the day he was born until April 20th. And we were finally discharged, but we couldn't go back to Montana. We had to stay local because he had to be monitored by the cardiologist and all of his therapists. He had an occupational therapist, a speech therapist, um, a physical therapist. And he had to see all of them because he was developmentally delayed. Mm. And as most heart babies are. 
So we were home for a short amount of time. We were home for about three and a half weeks. What was it like to bring him home? <sighs> Stressful. I cried a lot. I cried so much because at the time I didn't realize it, but I was suffering pretty bad from postpartum depression. Yeah. And I was kind of dismissed because I was able to take a shower. I was able to put myself together. But I've always been a very high-functioning person when it comes to having anxiety or depression. I always oh. do what I need to, and I just slap on a high face when I need to. Mm-hmm. And But I felt like I just, I didn't feel like I was a good enough mom. I didn't feel like, I felt like he deserved a better mom that was better put together and like better equipped to handle everything but he had a long list of medications that we needed to administer every single day he had medications at nine o'clock in the morning at one o'clock in the afternoon nine o'clock at night and then one o'clock in the middle of the night and wow. then we had to change his j-tube breast milk that's fortified with formula every four hours we had to change his j-tube pack every 24 hours we had to monitor his heart rate and his oxygen levels every morning and night we had to weigh him every morning to make sure that he wasn't losing weight Uh, we had to make sure we had to clean his j-tube area properly um, sanitize it make sure it didn't get infected it was a lot it was really overwhelming just to pause really fast (laughs) You've moved to another state to have this child. How long did it take you to learn all of these medical things? Because I hear you talk and you are so fluent in this terminology. You're so fluent in all these alphabet soup. And then you're also learning all these medications. So my husband was like the real hero when it came to the medications. Because I'm just going to read you a few names of them. So he had like amoxicillin, which was for his asplenia, which was then like an antibiotic. He had aspirin um, to prevent him from going into heart failure. He had digoxin. This was one of the most important ones that we could not miss. Omeprazole, Sotolol, um, Ursodiol. And he knew it, the exact name at which time. And I was just like, I couldn't even memorize these names. Like, I, ha- I always have to look at the list to make sure because I didn't even trust myself. Like, even if I thought I knew I remembered it, I would always double check visually because God forbid I administer the wrong med in the wrong dose at the wrong time. Right. And like, those were just, that's a lot of pressure. Like you can't yeah. give this baby the wrong dose. You can't miss a dose because if you do, your child could go into heart failure. They could go into cardiac arrest. They could wow. like, it was really hard. It was really overwhelming. And then you coupled um, that with the, you said you were experiencing postpartum depression as well. Yeah. I just like, all I just wanted to do was sleep. And at one point I felt so guilty for feeling this. At one point I just, I wished that we were back in the hospital just for at least one night so I could sleep. Yeah. I was just so exhausted, but then I felt bad thinking that because why would I want to go back to the hospital so when we did have to be um admitted again it was um what was it it was May 27th we had to be admitted again and it was because his um 
his skin was breaking down around where his J-tube was connected. And um, I felt like it was my fault my fault for having to go back because I felt like I had um it's just like you know Raquel you wanted a break like here's your break now he's back Mm. but it just it was the weirdest feeling because I feel like deep down in my heart I knew we weren't leaving the hospital that time wow and even if you know those things aren't true like you know you didn't do anything wrong it's hard not to say what if yeah. Like, you know, you did everything right. You know, you're an excellent mom and still your brain plays tricks on you. Yeah. After we admitted, we started doing some pretty hefty work on his J-tube area. His skin was healing. And then all of a sudden his oxygen level started dropping and he just wasn't doing well. He wasn't able to be with room air. And um, he ended up like on six liters of oxygen. And just like, how did this even happen? Like, how did he go from being so good to this? And then uh, on June 6th, he started having SVT, which is a superventricular tachycardia, which is basically when your heart rate just shoots up. It was like in the 250s, 230s. And then it would shoot back down to like 120, 130s. And then I would just keep doing that. This has happened. This was an issue that he had since he was a baby, and he would normally be able to snap out of it. And I remember we needed to go to Jesse Penny so I can get my wedding ring resized before we went back to Montana because we were already talking to the doctors about um, making a plan for his second open heart surgery. That was next. And they said that we'd be looking into that in two to three weeks. So we were super excited. We were so close to going home. Yeah. And um, so we told them like, okay, can we leave in like an hour? We're just going to go to Jesse Penny. We're going to come right back. And once we got to Jesse Penny, we got a phone call saying, you know, we needed to give you a call because he coded. And I didn't know what that meant. And when I got there, there was a whole bunch of doctors in the entire CICU unit. And apparently three patients had coded at the same time as Dominic did. Whoa. They said that um, his SVT had sent him into cardiac arrest. So basically he stopped breathing. Oh my gosh. And you heard this on the phone? Yeah. So when we got there, he was already in a room and there was doctors already working on him. And he had been down for like a half hour by the time that we got there. And they said, um, are you sure you want us to put him on ECMO? We're struggling to put it where it's supposed to, so we'd have to put it in his neck versus anywhere else. And at this point, you should let him go because he's not going to make it. He's been down for too long. And I just remember thinking, like, how am I supposed to let him go? Right. You would do anything to protect your child. Yeah, so I talked to my husband and I was like, you need to go in there and you need to tell them that they need to do whatever they need to do and they just need to put him on ECMO. They ended up being able to hook him back up and um, the next few weeks after that was just horrible. There was neurologists that came to check him out. They hooked him up to EKGs, monitor his brain activity. They basically said that he had suffered so much brain damage they didn't know 
whether or not he'd ever be able to come off ECMO. They ended up trying four different times and they couldn't get him to wean off his oxygen and his heart rate would just drop if they tried. And the worst part was that they ended up doing epinephrine uh, trials because that's what they would, they would need to administer if he went into cardiac arrest again. Mm-hmm. And they're like, we tried the highest dose of epinephrine we have and he's not responding at all. So that meant that he had so much brain damage he couldn't even register the epinephrine anymore. He wasn't able to open his eyes. He wasn't able to swallow. He wasn't able to move on his own. He just laid there. I can tell as you're you're explaining this, you're reliving it so fully. To watch your child just lay there. It was so hard because I remember him just smiling and being the happiest boy just a few weeks before that and I just didn't know how he went from that to him being this way because you were talking about his next surgery and getting him better and yeah yeah we were supposed to be going home that month and then all of this happened and then they kept asking us are you sure you want to keep going? Are you sure you want to keep going? And we said, yes, we're going to keep doing everything we possibly can until we exhaust all of our options. And on the 17th of June, they ended up approaching us and they're like, "Um, can we have you guys come sit with us in the next room? And they ended up calling palliative care, which I knew what that meant. So the doctor can you help the listeners um well I I don't mind (laughs) explaining it um when I was a chaplain at Duke I worked on the palliative care team for pediatrics and um what that means is you just want the person to have the best quality of life for as long as they live yeah so um basically they started talking to us about how even if he did ever come off of ECMO he would never be the same he'd have severe cerebral palsy he would be extremely developmentally delayed. He wouldn't be able to talk. He wouldn't even be able to breathe on his own. But it wasn't looking like he was going to survive or even make it through that weekend because they have exhausted all options. His lungs had collapsed at this point and they kept having to pump them every single day just to keep them inflated. Mm. And he began going into organ failure. His kidneys were failing. His heart was failing. Oh. And it was just... It was just bad. And they said, we've unfortunately crossed that bridge where you guys need to make that decision of when you're going to let him go and how. And um, I can't so imagine I to- having a, a doctor tell me you need to make a decision on letting your child go. I think the worst part was the way that she spoke about him. She's just like, you know, he's so sick at this point that even when you clamp him, it's just going to be a few minutes until he expires. <sighs> and it's just like... It just, it really hurt me because I felt like they were just talking about him like he was just another thing that was just there. To like, say he, that he expires, he's not milk. He's a human. Yeah. Yeah. So I had to call my family, my parents, my husband's parents, my brothers, and um, we were supposed to get pictures taken on Father's Day, which was the 21st in June. That was going to be my husband's first Father's Day. And um, June 20th came around and they said, 
he's not going to look the same tomorrow. He's his organ failures progressing really fast and he's just he's just not going to look the same so um we made the decision to get those pictures done the 20th and we all said goodbye the 20th and I feel like that was a really traumatizing day because I expected him to pass away quickly and he didn't he started um he started gasping for air and And you had to watch him I just felt like the worst mother because there's nothing I can do. And it was like 30, 40 minutes had passed and he just kept fighting and fighting. He didn't want to let go. He loves you. That baby loves you. I said, God, if there's any love for me or this child I need you to just take him because I can't keep watching him struggle like this like this is just killing me and um the doctor ended up coming in and she ended up checking um his heart and his oh his skin was just so cold and she's just like he's with Jesus now it sounds like you already knew whenever she said it yeah, I had my hand resting on his chest and I could feel that his heart wasn't beating anymore. Oh, that was the worst day of my life. Yeah. So many families have heard a doctor say there's no heartbeat, whether that be in pregnancy or another time, but you felt, you felt it literally and physically. Yeah. That's, that's heavy. I, whew. I never in my life thought that I was going to be that person who had their child die. I just thought there's no way I can pray for this child and be given this child just for him to be ripped from my arms like this. I just don't understand it. Well, it's always something you think that happens, it happens to other people. It doesn't happen to me. Yeah. I noticed you said that you were praying whenever, um, when you saw him trying to breathe. And it sounds like you prayed a very authentic prayer. God, just take him. If it's his time, just take him. That kind of surrender, that kind of um, just compassion that you're showing for your little, little tiny baby is such a beautiful mother's love because your heart is being ripped out of your chest and all you want is your baby to have peace. Yeah. That is a beautiful, beautiful prayer. It was really difficult, but he, he had thought from the moment that he was conceived and he was so funny and so sassy and he had personality And I remember he would give the nurses such a hard time sometimes and they would tell the doctors and I remember a cardiologist saying like, well, we'd rather have a feisty heart warrior than, you know, a docile one because the feisty one is always going to be fighting. And um, he passed away when he was four months and three days old. It's been really hard dealing with his passing. I... I haven't found my peace yet, but I hope 
that by sharing a story, I'll find some peace. It might be possible that that there's really is no peace with losing a child. I, I mean, it might be possible that we just learn to incorporate it into our being. I pray that the pain um, becomes less crippling, but I fear that it'll always be there. That's definitely something that I've accepted. Um, like one of my aunts, she lost her, her son when he was 15, and that was four years ago now. And she always posts about him and talks about him and how she feels empty, even though she has two other sons, she just feels empty. And people will always make comments like, he wouldn't want you to be sad or, you know, be strong for your other boys. And it's just like, you're invalidating her grief. You are telling her that she shouldn't feel that way or she should just move on or she should just slap on a happy face. And you can't do that. Like, a whole part of you is missing and you're never getting it back. So I don't think people get it. And I feel like it's worse when somebody who has lost a child still tries to tell you how you should grieve and for how long, like, Oh, I'm over it. You should be over it. Right. And this is definitely something that I'm never going to be able to move past. It's just always going to be there. Well, I think that speaks to you as a mother a mother would not move past their child. A mother would show compassion and love and tears whenever they think of their kid. Yeah. So this is actually the first time, I think since he's passed away, that I've actually told, talked about like his whole story, which is really hard because I've only said his story in like bits and pieces. And I feel like a part of me was really scared of recording this because I knew I have to relive the whole thing. But I, I find so much strength in you just the way you're so authentic um, with your emotions. I, I think a lot of people find like are scared to cry or are scared to show those feelings. And I just see so much love and tears. I see so much love and the way that you are able to talk through the pain and within the pain and share the pain um, just, just shows how much adoration you have for little Dominic and always will. Yeah. I'm seeing also a parallel between your mom, who is your inspiration has just had so much, so many, many terrible things happen to her and you had so many terrible things happened all at once. Yeah. All at once. And here you are talking about it. Yeah. It's, uh, it's been an emotional roller coaster. I just, it's just a journey I never thought that I would actually be on for right. sure. And it's just, it's been so strange navigating through all the emotions. And I feel like the one emotion is still, so, so, so strong is anger. And just, I'm still so angry. Yeah. And um, my biggest struggle has been with my faith because people always tell me like, just trust God, especially now that I'm pregnant now, like just trust God, trust that everything's going to be okay. Have faith that everything is going to be okay. It's like, I have that faith and my son died. Yeah. So how am I supposed to trust that everything's just going to work out and be okay? I just can't. 
but I feel like he knows my heart and he understands why I'm so angry and he is going to give me the time I need to heal from it. I couldn't have said it better myself. I think anger is completely to be expected. It's part of the grieving process. And I think every mom listening has felt that. We have anger at different things. We have anger at ourselves. We have angry at our spouses. Sometimes we have anger at God and God can hold that anger. Yes. God can hold that anger. God is big enough to hold that. Yeah. And just like you said, God knows your heart. Yes. And I got, I would get so frustrated because I remember one time somebody told me, you can't be mad at God because everything happens for a reason. I'm like, actually, no, my son did not die for a reason. My son died because he was very sick. Yes. And congenital heart defects, unfortunately, affects in one in 100 births. And it's so common that people don't even talk about it. And I remember watching this video that said that congenital heart defects actually affect more children than all childhood cancers put together, but they have 10 times the underfunding. And it's just like, how is this even possible that it affects so much, but there's a St. Jude, but there's nothing for congenital heart defects. And there's these people that are relocating their entire lives and racking up hundreds of thousands of medical debts because they have to do what they have to do for that child. Yeah. And I feel like even though this hurts me to relive the pain, to relive this journey, I have to talk about it because people need to know about CHD. People need to know that you, you need to be aware of this when you're pregnant. You need to request fetal echocardiograms. You need to make sure that you check the heart because if you know that if there's something wrong with your baby's heart, you can be proactive. You can make a plan. You could figure out the best treatments for your child so you're not left in the dark when they're born they're like oh hey your baby has CHD and these are all the defects that they have oh by the way they need open heart surgery in two days like and CHD for those who are listening is congenital heart defects I'm just trying to turn my pain into helping other people understand the complexity of CHD and how prevalent it is. At this I think that's an incredible way to honor Dominic is by saying, this is a terrible, terrible thing that happened. My baby passed because of congenital heart defect and I'm going to help other people. What a beautiful yeah. way to honor him. And I've met some amazing people since Dominic, including uh, men and women who have heart babies that are still going through their journeys. Uh, mothers who have recently lost their babies it's just it's heartbreaking because I feel like every time I see a heart baby pass away from another cardiac arrest like how how is it even possible that a four-month-old could have a cardiac arrest like how is that even possible I didn't know that was possible yeah and um and then they pass away and it's just like it's just babies aren't supposed to no not especially in that horrible kind of way like yeah the things these babies go through but oh my gosh these babies are so resilient and they're so happy like you would never suspect that they're sick if their hearts are so fragile they're just they're beautiful and I don't regret having my son one bit they did give us the option to terminate several times through our pregnancy and we're like nope we're carried on the term we're gonna see what's gonna happen and it is what it is. We knew what we were going in for. We knew there was a possibility of losing him. 
but I got four beautiful months of him and more than I could ask for. Dominic is so lucky to have you. You've spoken to faith and just, I've been really impressed by how authentic your faith is. And um, I know you say your faith is, you know, it's a struggle. And I think that's completely understandable because when you lose a child, everything around you crumbles, right? Yes. And yet in that, I also know that you've cried out to God, like, God, you get it. You know where I'm coming from. Yeah. That's Um, a, that's a very authentic faith. One of my friends, actually something that she said really helped me a lot. Um, She had a miscarriage and it was her first child and it was at 13, 14 weeks. And she told me that one day she was sitting down at the dining table and she pulled out a chair from the dining table and sat right in front of it. And she just imagined she visualized that God was sitting there and she's like, you know, God is our father. So you have a relationship with your father and you're not always going to get along with your father. You're not always going to like um, what happened and you're not always going to be their biggest fan. So she sat there and she just yelled how upset she was, how mad she was and how she didn't understand how things were happening. But it helped her because she's just like, you know, our God doesn't take life. He gives it. Mm. And people often say that they're mad because God took their child. And they're like, unfortunately, we just live in a world with disease and illness and horrible things just happen. And not everybody can live. And it's hard for me to still understand why it had to be my child but then again every single mother and father who have lost a child asks the very same question and unfortunately there's never going to be an answer to it but I think one of the things that I have also found healing is I pray for the other babies like I just I want for them to be able to go home with their families I'm happy when they're able to go home with their families and I pray that those parents have comfort and encouragement I feel some kind of love from someone. So if I ever see somebody post that their child is in the hospital, I reach out to them and see if there's anything that I can do for them. If they have faith, I'd like to pray for them. If they need some coffee, something. There's always something that you can do. And it's just like once you've suffered in this kind of way, you don't ever want to see somebody suffer that way. But nobody in this world deserves to lose a child. And if there's anything, I would definitely encourage anybody who is listening to this, if you see somebody genuinely suffering, even if it's a small suffering, do your part to alleviate that suffering. Whether it's just lending an ear, whether it's just talking to them, inviting them out for a coffee. I mean, with COVID, it's a little tricky, but, you know, a Zoom call, there's just too much pain and suffering in this world. We shouldn't have to do it alone. Raquel, you have such a kind spirit um, to, to take the horrible things that have happened in your life and to um, use them as motivation to care for others, um, to give to others what you needed yourself. That's, that's beautiful. I wish I hadn't felt so alone when right. I was going through everything and it's, 
it's unfortunate that you have to wait for something horrible to happen for people to come to your aid. And I wish it wasn't like that. So I guess that's what I'm trying to do now is I shouldn't have to wait until your child dies or something horrible happens in your life for me to reach out and say, are you okay? Mm-hmm. I'm so amazed at how you honor Dominic and all these different ways. I mean, the, the things you say just keep coming in the ways that you are continuing to mother him, even though he's in heaven, you continue to honor him and love him and cherish him. And it's really cool that I never got to meet him. And I still like, I feel like I'm being introduced to him through you. Yeah. That's really, that's really special. I feel honored um, to get to hear his story like this. And um, cause your kid is your most prized, you know, closest to your heart and for you to yeah. share him with me, just, I feel so special. Yeah. Um, before we go here, you, you did say that you were, it drove you crazy when people said everything happens for a reason. And I can't agree. Oh my gosh. That is a terrible one to me. Um, is that what you want to stick with on your, your least favorite phrase? Honestly, I think I'm going to have to go with that one. Yeah. Everything happens for a reason. Nothing irks me more than that. Yeah. Or it's- yeah, everything happens for a reason. He's better off with he's he or God needed him more than you, but definitely everything happens for a reason. I guess that is so much. All of those are so terrible. So terrible. I think everything happens for a reason is just a terrible phrase. And it's I don't know, I don't even know where it came from. Um, <laughs> yeah, I don't even know where it came from. And even though I know Dominic is so happy with Jesus, I know he would also be happy in your arms. Yeah, he, that was a big sacrifice that I had to make. I had to, I had to let him go. It had to be a selfless decision. He was suffering so much and it wasn't fair to keep him here just because I physically wanted him here. It just, it wasn't fair. Yeah. But you getting a flat tire on the highway, okay, everything happens for a reason. Maybe you're going to get in an accident. But your child dying, everything happens for a reason. It, it doesn't work. And I really hope that people stop saying that because it just, I am a nice person, but it makes me want to punch someone in the face. Like I just, I cannot stand that phrase. Yeah. Yeah. I totally agree. And I'm a pastor and I agree that I would like to punch them <laughs> in the face too. <laughs> Yeah. Yeah. Well, Raquel, like I said, I'm so honored that you have shared Dominic with me and you've been so brave and so authentic to share Dominic with everyone. Um, you have such a motherly instinct and such a motherly heart. And, um, I'm, I'm just so impressed with you and I hope that you can see in yourself what I see in you. Well, thank you. And Thank you so much for giving me the opportunity to talk about Dominic. I appreciate any, any chance that I can get to talk about him because I love talking about him. Yeah. He will always be my first son. He will always be my firstborn. He'll always be my first child. Well, it's our honor to hear about him. This has been another episode of the Love and Loss podcast. If you like what you hear, feel free to subscribe to us and rate us wherever you get your podcasts.